Welcome to The Burn Bag. My name is Andre Gonawala, being joined by my co-hosts and co-producers, Andrea Ochoa, Anna Haynes, and David Carpenter. Uh, guys, how are you doing? It's the end of a long work day on Tuesday here in the DMV, and Andrea, you're in New York, but how are you all doing today? Doing pretty well, Andre, I think. You know, just waiting to get to the middle of the week, waiting until the week is over. <laughs> um, it first snowed for the first time uh, last night in New York, so it's a little bit cold here too, but... It's not the nice powdery snow. It's like slushy city snow. It's not that nice. <laughs> I'm so jealous right now because, I mean, I, I actually like cold weather. Uh, I don't like sunny, hot weather. And DC's hardly gotten a smattering of snow. Anna, David, I feel like y'all probably think differently from me. <laughs> no, I agree. I'm like, I love snow so much. And we got those beautiful flurries for like an hour over the weekend. That's and I was gorgeous. just like pressing my nose to the glass of my windows, just taking it all in for the one hour of pretty snow that we get for like basically the whole winter. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I was, um, I was, I feel like in general, I haven't missed like the super cold winters that I grew up in, but, um, Definitely was glad we had at least a little bit of snow. I was a little disappointed before that, that I didn't get to see any pretty much the whole season. Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, I dislike sunny skies and clear weather and all of that. I just love snow. And hopefully we'll get it next winter. But Andrea, I am jealous of you and all the New Yorkers. Uh, but we're not here to talk about the weather, as awkward as it always sounds. Uh <laughs> Uh, we are here to talk a bit about, you know, what's happening in foreign policy and national security. You know, we have a great episode that Anna and David uh, were able to record last week. Uh, but first of all, I mean, what's been happening in the news? Uh, well, President Biden did a sudden visit to Ukraine. Uh, he was in Kiev uh, meeting with President Zelensky. It was very much kept under wraps. Uh, guys, what are your reactions to that news? Uh, interesting visit. Uh, he was walking with his aviators with the President Zelensky uh, as some air raid sirens were going off. But guys, reactions? I think my initial reaction is how fascinating it is to um, like try to at least comprehend the level of planning and organization that goes around trips like this. Um, I think you know, it, it was something that at least it was unexpected for me in the news, but seeing that happen and, and just understanding what our strategic goals are in that region as of now, um, it wasn't really unexpected. I, I knew, you know, at least at one point, you know, Biden would want to um, display this, this kind of symbol of unrelenting support um, for, you know, Ukraine and the war efforts there, um, as well as, you know, doing a little bit of a tour in, in Eastern Europe and, and our NATO allies in that region as well. So um, again, just kind of a little bit, I guess, in, in awe of, you know, how much preparation I imagine going into it. But I think um, overall, you know, an effective visit for, you know, the type of communication and strategy we want to put forth. Yeah, yeah certainly a very long train ride president had to take, I think, from Poland to Ukraine. Uh, and it's just crazy, you know, how much of this was kept under wraps, you know, how I, I think previous presidents, when they visited, uh, for example, Iraq, Afghanistan, I know when President Bush visited, I believe, Iraq for Thanksgiving, that was very much kept under wraps. Uh, and so much security efforts go into that. But I think a fun fact, I think this is the first time a U.S. president has visited sort of a battle zone, a war zone that wasn't under direct control uh, by the U.S. military, because 
well, obviously, the U.S. military is not present uh, in Ukraine. So uh, I, I find that very interesting. Uh, certainly, obviously, you know, some communication probably went on with Russia earlier, you know, to ensure that Biden would actually be able to step foot in Kiev, obviously. Uh, but just such a interesting visit and certainly a strong signal uh, to allies and adversaries, uh, for sure. David, do you have any thoughts? Nothing that um, Andre didn't already mention. I just think, yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't surprised that he visited Ukraine. I think a lot of people were expecting, you know, this big lead up to the tour in Eastern Europe that, um, or at least I was expecting that, you know, that wouldn't be that surprising if he, um, you know, made an appearance there, um, especially at least with Zelensky. But um, I think it was, yeah, interesting how much it was kept under wraps. And um, I, I did read that there was some prior communication with Russia. So it'd, it'd be interesting to know like what that communication looked like um, and how they go about reporting um, his presence there and, and what if there was any back and forth with that. But um, yeah, I think uh, obviously an important um, symbolic moment for the president. Yeah, certainly. And, uh, you know, obviously there's, I think, a little bit more political dissension about uh, funding for Ukraine, funding uh, in terms of military aid that the United States is providing to Ukraine. So I, I think that's going to be very interesting to see play out, you know, over the days and months and weeks uh, ahead as, uh, you know, there is more of a populist uh rejection, you know, of the need to uh, support Ukraine uh, within the Republican Party, for example. But, uh, you know, th those conversations will be ongoing uh, and will be interesting to observe. Uh, in other news, uh, the Department of Energy uh, gave a low confidence sort of a conclusion that a lab leak uh, was the origin of COVID-19. So that's the DOE and the FBI believing that, uh, whereas some other intelligence uh, agencies and departments in the federal government believe that it was more of a zoonotic uh, origin, sort of animal to human transfer of COVID. But I, w what are y'all's reactions? Because it's, I mean, it's interesting, right? Like we're having different agencies sort of now give us different routes of COVID, uh, but still a lot of uncertainty that's going around with the origins. Yeah, something that's really struck me here is the way that this is reported, like so um, just like blatantly in the news cycle. I think it's really interesting that it's getting the level of attention that it is, given that a low confidence score, at least in my understanding, is the lowest score that you can get in analytic confidence. Um, I think there's high confidence, moderate confidence, and then low confidence. So even if something's given high confidence, there's generally still a healthy dose of skepticism or assuming that that could be wrong. It's just that sources have been validated to the highest degree possible. Moderate confidence is kind of a shaky analytic conclusion. And then low confidence typically means we don't have confidence in those sources or there's something that's, you know, unreliable in that analysis. And so I think it's really interesting that this is dominating the news cycle with a vote of low confidence. Um, and I think it just kind of begs the question of why this is coming out right now. You know, there's a lot of reporting around China right now with the um, weather balloon, and it seems like this is shaping up to be a really hot political topic in the next elections. Um, so I do just think it's interesting timing, especially given that this is a really 
low confidence estimation and it doesn't really change either U.S. or international bodies interpretation of how COVID started. Yeah, and it's it's curious, right? Because I f- I feel like a lot of this coverage, I mean, certainly the coverage has been quite significant, right? Since this report by the Department of Energy came out, uh, but I, I think it's significant that this is within the realm of possibility. For example, I feel like a lot of folks may say that uh, that you know this lab leak uh, perspective may have been shut down, for example, in conversations in earlier months uh, during the pandemic and so on. Uh, and there is a lot of uh, sort of additional commentary, uh, additional controversial commentary that paired up with the lab leak theory. But uh, I think the fact that it is within the realm of possibility by the intelligence community itself is, I keep using the word interesting (laughs) because of the lack of anything else to say, but uh, it's certainly significant. but I mean, when we talk about the lab leak theory, this isn't like, oh, they were some evil scientists concocting some uh, crazy virus in a lab, right? It's not like bio weaponry, but this is more sort of the situation where, you know, they were doing research on, you know, new coronaviruses. So they sort of set up perhaps these experimental viruses and one of them got out somehow. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly going to be a big political hot button issue. Uh, Andrea, David, do you all have any uh, comments or Anna, do you have a response, uh, I guess? <laughs> yeah, I think just one other like point to clarify is um, I think you make such a good point that this isn't something that was a nefarious plot behind the scenes, and that's not what we're saying. But um, the way that news headlines portray this just because of limited words, um, I think could lead to some like outrage against China in a way that I don't think is super productive. Um, You know, there's Mm -hmm. conventional wisdom that says a lot of viewers don't read past the headlines. There's the 80-20 rule, which I haven't found anything to corroborate this in terms of (laughs) a study. But, you know, um, it is true to some extent that a lot of people will only read the headlines. And so those headlines leave a lot to be desired in terms of exploring what this low confidence assessment actually means. Um, But yeah, I'll kick it over to Andrea and David. No, I mean, I think that was very well said, Anna. I think, you know, it's also worth pointing out that not all of the intelligence agencies in the IC agree on, you know, what is coming out regarding this topic on the origins of COVID. But um, I think it's, it's very important to think critically about the news cycle, how we process news and, you know, the political events around us that lead us to like lead us to taking in information in different ways. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I feel like, I mean, again, this being the in the realm of possibility uh, is certainly significant. But again, Anna, as you say, how the headlines are interpreted, you know, when you see lab leak theory, quote unquote, confirmed by DOE in, in the eyes, in the in the minds of many, that may lead them to make like, oh, significant conclusions about, you know, what the government is and isn't saying. And they never actually read the actual story. But uh, again, I mean, th- that's been happening. Uh, also, additionally, folks, you know, I would want to point your attention to uh, the conflicts occurring uh, in Israel-Palestine uh, and some of the violence over there. Please do take a look at that. Uh, also, there's been a lot of controversy uh, around the Nigerian uh, elections, uh, sort of an under covered story, uh, but still an important story. Uh, So take a look at that. But Anna and David, y'all had a great uh, conversation uh, last week. Uh, What's the subject of this week's episode? 
So this week, we talked to Cynthia Lurcher from the James Foley Legacy Foundation. Um, and Andrea was talking earlier about how she was struck around the Biden visits to Ukraine, just the level of coordination that has to go into a visit like that. And I had a really similar reaction to what Cynthia was talking to us about um, in terms of bringing hostages or wrongfully detained people um, from abroad back home to the U.S. It was just, it was such a sprawling conversation. And I feel like my understanding of this issue was widely expanded. Um, David, what were your thoughts? Yeah, fully agree with everything you said, Anna. I think, you know, I have some experience in the field of hostage affairs or uh, whatever you want to call it, but um, agreed that I just think the conversation really took um, a lot of turns and like level and expertise that I wasn't aware of beforehand. And um, just I think the knowledge I gained and the insights that I learned from the conversation were really interesting. And I think a lot of our viewers will uh, think the same. So pick it off to our interview now. Today we are joined by Cynthia Lorcher. Cynthia is the Director of Research, Hostage Advocacy, and Government Affairs for the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation, a non-governmental organization dedicated to advocating for all Americans held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad. Cynthia is responsible for developing the Foundation's research efforts and authors the Foundation's annual Hostage and Wrongful Detainee Report, Bring Americans Home, which she has authored for the past four years. Her other duties include building effective relationships across the U.S. government, third-party intermediaries, private hostage advocates, and other NGOs to successfully advocate for the return of Americans held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad. Prior to working for the foundation, Cynthia was a contracted researcher at the Combating Terrorism Center at the United States Military Academy at West Point. There, she participated in a variety of research initiatives, all centered around counterterrorism efforts. Cynthia's background is also in the hard sciences, and she continues to collaborate with Miami University of Ohio, working on defense-related technologies. We're so excited to have her today. Cynthia, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so now just to get started, uh, beyond you know that the plethora of experience you have in hostage affairs and the hard sciences and counterterrorism, I was wondering if you could just give a brief background um, from your own words of your career and kind of what brought you into the hostage affairs space. Sure. Um... You know, to be honest, uh, hostage affairs, you know, getting into hostage affairs, it wasn't something that I had aspired to get into uh, at first. At the time, I was I was working as a contracted researcher at the Combating Terrorism Center, and there was a project that focused on comparing trends and kidnapping of Westerners uh, by jihadist groups against other militant groups and non-state actors. Uh, and that project was called Held Hostage, and that was a... Um, a CTC report that was published uh, about a, a little over a year after the um, brutal, brutal killings of Jim Foley and Stephen Sotloff, Peter Kassig, and Kayla Mueller. And it was there at the CTC where I was able to help build the held hostage database. And honestly, it wasn't until probably a couple of years after that uh, where the Foley Foundation approached me and I agreed to consult and help with some of their research efforts. And, you know, things just developed slowly. And eventually I, 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 I started leading their research efforts. And, and, um, and through that, I engaged with a lot of, a lot of hostage families and, and former hostages themselves. And, you know, the reason why I just mentioned the Held Hostage Database is 
because you know, I, I had looked at an enormous amount of data, raw data encoded hundreds and hundreds of cases. And, you know, from an academic perspective, one that I had, I, I, I could really claim, hey, I'm familiar with hostage takings. But after after engaging with families, I, I quickly realized I knew nothing. Um, you know, just let me frame it this way. So in 2015, we'll talk about this probably a bit later, but there is a, um, the U.S. government conducted a review, which was led by the National Counterterrorism Center, the NCTC. And, and in, in the beginning of that review, they, they engaged with families as a whole, uh, meaning that there was a large room, multiple families were in the same room together, and they're asking, you know, family A, tell us about this experience, family B, tell us, and it quickly, you know, it was very, it was a very overwhelming process, and I know those individuals really were struck by how, um, how these families were impacted by hostage takings. And they quickly, quickly realized, hey, we need to, in, we need to individually address these cases in, in, one by one. Um, you know, in another instance, um, in this in this last spring, there's the ISIS trial. Uh, U.S. government ha- was um, uh, trying El Sheikh, one of the ISIS beetles that was responsible for the kidnapping and torture of many of our Americans that were um, killed in 2014 and 15. And I was sitting, you know, I sat and listened to each of um, each of the survivors sharing their testimony and their experience. And it's just it was overwhelming. Um, it was just it was very overwhelming. But I was I, I was accompanied by a terrorism and counterterrorism expert um, who spent decades, I mean, writing books on terrorism. He looked me in the eye and said, Cindy, I've been doing this for decades and I've never heard it this way. Um, you know, he too is impacted. So there's something there's something to say about hostage takings, whether it be via non-state or by state actors. Each case is unique. Each case has its challenges and each case has its constraints. So I went from approaching hostage issues from more of an academic perspective uh, to diving into the very, very deep end of the pool. Uh, and it's honestly become one of my greatest privileges of my life to serve and help these American citizens and their families who are held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad. And now it sounds to me that you've taken this really rich background in academic experience and married that with these really poignant in-person experiences, working up close and personal with hostages and their families. And you're using that now to um, create a report series with the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation. I was wondering, could you tell us more about the role of that foundation, your work there, and the the trajectory going forward? Um, absolutely. So I, I'm sure there's many of your listeners that will remember Jim Foley. Um, so Jim Foley, he was he was kidnapped Thanksgiving Day uh, back in 2012 and was brutally killed by ISIS in August of 2014. And Jim's mother, Diane Foley, who, I mean, she instinctively knew that our government could and should do better for our fellow Americans who are taken hostage abroad. And it was it was probably about three weeks after Jim's death that uh, she started the James Foley uh, Legacy Foundation. And Diane really she really became one of the strongest voices uh, for hostage issues and encouraged three administrations to do more to bring Americans home. And so our mission really 
was inspired by Jim's life's work. And since his passing, we've catalyzed action, produced timely, impactful research, advocated for policy changes that continue to change um, our hostage and wrongful detainee landscape that we see today. And, you know, and last, and not, uh, last but not least, we, we have been able to advocate for Americans that are held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad. So, you know, earlier I mentioned the NCTC review in 2015, and the, the Foley Foundation really wanted to um, continue those efforts to basically construct a non-governmental review to evaluate the hostage enterprise and and family engagement. So this year, or I guess last year, in September of 22, we published our fourth annual report. And it's important to note that it's written from the perspective of hostage families, hostages themselves, as well as, you know, their family representative or a hostage advocate. Uh, I do, I do, I do um, interview outgoing U.S. officials, but I keep that number very limited to less than 1% um, for the number of cases. So, you know, really these reports are designed to identify whatever systemic gaps remain in our current hostage policy and be able to provide recommendations to just kind of plug those holes. Our goal is really to work constructively with the U.S. government. Um, there are so many dedicated U.S. officials and people that care about these issues and it's just so important to have a collaborative spirit about the work that we do and just continue to move forward as hostage and wrongful detainee issues continue to evolve. You mentioned a little bit about working with the U.S. government and analyzing current U.S. hostage policy and giving recommendations for possible pass forward. And I was hoping you could just give our, our listeners a little bit of background on current U.S. hostage policy. So I know there's been a range of different policies passed, but I think the main ones that stick today and are kind of emblematic of the general hostage strategy and policy of the U.S. government are, you know, the PPD-30 and then the recent Levinson Act. And I was hoping, you know, within both of those and just generally, you could give some background on what the current hostage policy landscape looks like. Sure. Um, let me start with just a couple definitions at first. Uh, first. When, when I'm referring to hostage cases, I just want to be real specific. I'm excluding criminal cases in addition uh, to barricade-type incidents, So, which are the majority, the majority of hostage takings are, crim are criminally based. So we're talking like, you know, 5 to 10% of all hostage takings are, are, the, are the ones that, you know, that we're focusing on. These are characterized by uh, U.S. nationals that are that are kidnapped by either a terrorist organization, a militant group, or, or pirates, and they while they are uh, smaller in number, they are very impactful. We we saw the propaganda value of the ISIS killings back in 2014, and uh, and our, in the U.S. military response. So these are impactful cases. But I also, before I talk about policy, I do want to define a hostage versus wrongful detainee because it, it, it becomes critical when it comes to the policy. And so a hostage, again, as it, you know, previously defined, again, follows along with individual kidnapped by a terrorist organization, militant group, pirate. And in addition, um, a wrongful detainee is, is a, an American who is held by a state actor instead. So they're, they're, they're detained. Um, held 
for the same purposes, either to affect change in U.S. policy, forms for some form of concession, uh, or try and force some type of swap. But they're held by foreign governments. So I just want to make that distinction at first. So, but to answer your question, going back to our current policy, which is PPD 30, as you mentioned, that's Presidential Policy Directive 30, that came out during the Obama administration in June of 2015, along with Executive Order 13968, excuse me. And what that did was shift our the previous policy, which was NSPD 12, which was an entirely classified document, and um, it did lack in family engagement components. Well, completely, actually. So PPD 30, what it did, it was an unclassified version of that to some extent. And what it also did was create a the structures that we see today in our that are reflected in our U.S. government. For instance, we have the hostage recovery fusion cell uh, that is housed housed inside the FBI. Uh, it's an interagency, so it's not FBI owned, um, but so it's housed housed within the FBI. Over at the State Department, we have the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs. And uh, within the National Security Council, we have a group called the Hostage Response Group. And that's chaired by a special presidential, um, excuse me, a special assistant to the president, senior director for counterterrorism over within the NSC there. So we also, outside of those main structures, we do have positions that were created as well. We have a family engagement coordinator over at the hostage recovery fusion cell and uh, also um, an intelligence arm, somebody that's specifically mandated to help declassify information for families so they can get timely timely information uh, when necessary. So those are the structures that we see in place today uh, since 2015. And, you know, when it comes to policy, so as I mentioned, we have hostages and wrongful detainees. PPD 30 discussed hostage issues, individuals, again, held by terrorist organizations, etc. When it came to wrongful detainees, they weren't mentioned. There is a slight there's a slight discussion under the creation of the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. I'll call him Sfiha. That's what we call him. And uh, so within the Sfiha's office. They do. They can take on those cases, but that's it. But there's no structures built behind that. Um, so it's really critical why we continue to look at these cases and, and just watch the hostage and wrongful detainee landscape as they evolve, because they really do impact um, our, our policies and uh, our national security. Thank you so much for providing the clarity around the different terms and policies. Um, around hostage and wrongful detainee cases. I know as someone coming from the outside of this topic, I didn't know the distinction there. Um, And I think a lot of our listeners will agree. Some of the only times that this comes up to the general public is when um, we encounter different trends in hostage cases in the news. So that might be journalists um, being detained or really big high profile cases, but we don't know the overall trends and the historic background. Um, So I was wondering if you could just give us a primer on what are the trends throughout maybe the past decade or two decades in hostage cases and how are those changing and evolving right now? That's an excellent question. Uh, Actually, in our our September 22 Bringing Americans Home report, um, we the first half of that report actually looked at the landscape of hostage cases versus wrongful detainee cases. 
from 2001 to 2022. So the data stopped in August of 22 um, due to publication. Uh, but excellent question. When it comes to trends, you know, hostage cases by non-state actors overall have been cyclical. And while currently there are fewer cases in number, the durations of the kidnapping of Americans has increased. And we can quantify that in this in this last decade. The um, the length of captivity has increased by 60 percent, um, basically uh, where terrorist groups expand, we see hostage taking tends to follow that. And, you know, and it's a concern, really, because with, with recent uh, Western withdrawals, it creates these type of opportunities. Specifically, we're seeing this in Africa, where, um, where we're, we're still seeing a lot of these hostage takings. Uh, but when it comes to wrongful detainees, uh, the numbers are staggering. We So just for example, uh, the number of countries, you know, back in 2001 that were holding wrongfully detaining Americans were two countries, China and Iran. Uh, now, in this in this previous decade, we've had up to 19 countries that are wrongfully detaining Americans. So when we looked at the incident increase, so from the previous decade to this past decade, the number of incidents of Americans get wrongfully detained has increased by 175%. Now, so if you have these incidents, so you're having more Americans that are detained, well, they're also continuing to be held longer. While we do have releases, uh, which are great, there's still a cumulative growth of the number of Americans who continue to be held year after year. And that number from this past decade to this, the, or the current decade is increased by 580% percent increase for the number of Americans who that who continue to be held. And, you know, today, you know, we tracked the number of known cases, uh, public cases, if you will, uh, of Americans that are currently held hostage or wrong and wrongfully detained. So can, those in combinations over 60 Americans and the average length of detainment we're saying is over four and a half years. And, you know, and we looked at that in, in the previous decade, we looked at those numbers again, and the the majority of Americans that were held, they were held for less than a year. And this 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 current decade, uh, it's flipped the the majority of Americans who continue to be held um, are over four and a half years. Well, that's uh, that's really interesting. And also coming from someone who has a little bit of uh, background in this issue, I wasn't aware of that recent change in the number in the duration of hostage cases. I guess just following up on that, I was curious if you would give some insight, um, you know, whatever background you have or, you know, personally what you think of the situation. If you could explain why you think that is that hostage cases are tending to be have longer durations in recent years, or if that's, you know, just a general policy or if there's any difference we see between state and non-state actors on that issue. Um, really, whatever you could share on that would be really interesting. Sure. Uh, we'll start with wrongful detentions. And so the majority of these cases, we got to look, you have to, you know, you can't look at it overall, right? You need to look by country by country. Um, and the majority of countries that are holding Americans are are China, Iran, Russia, Venezuela, Syria. Um, so we look at our look at our relationship with those countries, right? So um We've had a decrease in the number of Americans held in North Korea, actually, 
but looking at the countries that are predominantly holding wrongfully detaining Americans, we're it's, we're in this gray space, right? So it's 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 a way to hold Americans to again their their tactic is been the same all along. It's to try and force some form of concession or to affect some sort of change in U.S. policy, very similar to hostage taking. The difference is we know where they are. Um, however, the stakes are just as high. Um, uh, and these poor, innocent Americans just become these geopolitical pawns um, getting pushed in between our U.S. policy and our relations with some of these countries. And it's an opportunity uh, to be able to just really kind of poke at the United States and really try and, you know, impact, you know, our priorities. So it, it's such an important issue. And as I mentioned before, you know, we looked at while we're talking about a limited, like with just hostage cases, a limited number um, compared to the entire scope of, you know, criminal hostage taking. Uh, these are impactful, impactful cases. And just look how we've responded. So. I know you've said a few times throughout this interview already that every single case is so unique. It depends on who's involved. It depends on where they are. Um, but I was wondering if you could just give us a look at what is the U.S. government's response when a hostage or wrongful detainee case is identified? What are those first steps or what groups and people are mobilized into action? That's that's a great question. You know, so when a hostage situation arises, the early stages are most critical. First 24 hours, first 48 hours, first two weeks, very, very, very important. And being able to gather intelligence and corroborating that intelligence is so important uh, to be able to make decisions uh, based off of the intelligence that you're able to gather. Uh, because I, I mean, hostage rescue operations—they're they're extremely risky. There's so much there's so much data on that, and uh, the risks to the force and the risks to the forces and the risks to the hostage are great. Uh, but you know, to mitigate that, you need you need good intelligence. And honestly, with their you know, in some of these areas, with the reduction of our RCT footprint, it makes gathering that intelligence all the more challenging and the ability to conduct these hostage rescue operations. So, you know, so, I mean, but you can shift, you know, it doesn't render us useless. I mean, you just have to shift and, and, and this is where relationships with our partners come into play, you know, or protecting powers. Um, but the, all that depends again, where an American is, is currently held hostage. Uh, but also this is why we have our hostage recovery fusion cell, um, which again is this was this was created uh, in 2015. So I, I mentioned earlier that the hostage recovery fusion cell called the HRFC is housed inside the FBI. It's essentially the U.S. government's dedicated interagency coordinating body at the operational level uh, for the recovery of U.S. nationals that are that are all held hostage abroad. Uh, the cell is really critical because they identify and make recommendations for when it comes to hostage recovery options and strategies, and that goes uh, goes to the president. However, I mentioned that hostage response group in the National Security Council. So it goes through, it goes through the, the hostage response group and goes up to the president. Um, in addition, the, the cell is really important because they're supposed to coordinate their efforts with other departments and agencies to make sure all the information is, is current and accurate 
um, in addition to um, what they're supposed to do is to also, you know, continue to track these hostage cases and continue to report through the HRG up to the president. But overall, you know, the hostage recovery fusion cell, they're, ma- they're the main conduit within the U.S. government that engages with the executive branch, all the other departments and agencies. And at the same time, they're interfacing with the hostage families themselves. So they have a really interesting role. And it's so important because these families, they're, they're super savvy and it's great to, you know, make sure that we're getting all of that information from the families as well, because all every, every last bit helps It'd be amazed some of these relationships that uh, these families have. And sometimes it cracks the case. I've seen it and not to go into it, but it happens. So it's, um, it's really, it's really an incredible and dynamic organization and uh, I'd like to continue, like to see the the cell continue to to grow and adapt as hostage and detainee issues evolve. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really important issue, and we'll go a little more into the U.S. government's interaction with hostage advocates and their families in a second. Um, but I just wanted to go back to one point you mentioned briefly, which is you know the U.S. government's interaction with protecting powers in other countries where there are wrongful detainees or hostage cases, perhaps. Um, And I was hoping you could expand a little bit on the role that diplomacy plays in bringing Americans home and what those relationships look like, how they shift in the event of a hostage case, and just any insight you can give there. That is is so important. Diplomacy is absolutely critical in all of these cases, hostage and wrongful detainee cases. uh, absolute critical role in bringing Americans home. And this is, uh, you know, going back to the policy, we have that special presidential envoy for hostage affairs, our SPIHA. Uh, that position was created to lead these diplomatic engagements on hostage policy, as well as coordinate all the diplomatic engagements in support of hostage recovery uh, efforts. Um, but it's, you know, it's in coordination with the hostage recovery fusion cell. But to be honest, you know, it's like the PPD PPD thirty says one thing, but in reality, um, we're seeing we're seeing a dual relationship. The cell is becoming it's focused on hostage cases, and then the Sfiha's office is focused on these wrongful detention cases, which makes sense. Um, however, you know, we need a lot of coordination between these two organizations um, to be able to bring these Americans home. Um, but yes, diplomacy is critical. And it's great that we have the special presidential envoy that we currently have, uh, Roger Carsons. He's he's absolutely incredible and um, works directly with these families, is coming up with a lot of recovery strategies and is briefing again. And they're able to be able to brief uh, brief these recovery options through the hostage response group to get up to the president. But it would be really great to see, you know, see more coordination um, getting up to POTUS to be able to bring bring these Americans home because these are high level decisions that have to be made. The legwork is being done, and that's absolutely critical and essential. But the missing element, and that is so important for these families, because look, we have cases that are, like I said, on average four and a half years. One of our cases is over twenty years, um, and we have so many Americans, so many families that are being impacted. And the longer these Americans are continuing to be held. We need to have decisive action by at at the POTUS level. We absolutely do. So it's so important that we are able to, you know, we have these structures in place. They're functioning well. 
And we, but what we need to do is continue to elevate and prioritize these hostage and wrongful detainee cases so that we know that we're, that these decisions are being had at the president's desk. And, you know, one of the, one of the positions that we're advocating for is a creation of um, a, DAP, a, de a deputy assistant to the president um, to be able to sit on the regional side. Like I said, we had that hostage response group um, that's chaired by, you know, by the, the SAP CT, senior director for CT. But on the regional side, uh, we need at the deputy level to be able to prioritize because these issues, right, like, remember all these the majority of our cases, we're dealing with Iran, we're dealing with China, we're dealing with Venezuela and Russia and Syria. These are complicated matters. So it's not to derail uh, but it's also, it's, but it's to be included to make sure that we have somebody that's eyes laser focused on wrongful detainee issues that can be able to see what's being pushed through the NSC, so we to be able to identify a potential opportunity uh, to be able to elevate or be able to be able to negotiate to get an American out. It's so important that we continue that um, to increase the prioritization within the White House, so we know that the president is seeing these cases so we can make decisive um, decisions. I'll take my advocacy hat, hat off here. I know I'm a researcher, but I, you know, but, but the hostage advocacy work, it gets, it gets me, gets me fired up sometimes. So I imagine it would be hard to differentiate between the academic and the advocate side of your, of your role. Um, they're just so closely intertwined. Um, I'm wondering with all this talk of national apparatuses and then diplomacy between countries, is there anything that international organizations like the UN or some other apparatus does or could do to come alongside the U.S. government or individual governments um, and help out in these cases? You know, that's, that's so important. This comes down to accountability and deterrence, right, um, which is so important because these are terrible you know, situations where, you know, I, I understand like these are difficult decisions that the president has to make. Absolutely. One hundred percent. Nobody's going to argue that. So, you know, having, you know, working with other Canada, for example, is a leading coalition um, that really is getting off the ground. Uh, it's a multilateral um, um, group working with the UK, the United States, um, I believe Australia as well. And, you know, how are we going to respond to, you know, you know, foreign governments that are wrongfully detaining our citizens? This isn't just happening in the United States. This is happening all over. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, and going back to, you know, we have um, the International Convention against the taking of hostages. Right. So that was that was uh, that was a U.N. Um, driven agreement. in back in 79, you know, let's 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 look at how we should respond to wrongful detentions. Should it be bilateral response, which is easier because you're just, you know, you're working. Uh, it's important to work with, you know, your you know, five eyes would be a great example. If you want to build out lar larger to do multilateral, because remember, you need to be able to all the countries that are that are uh, that are on on the support. You have to be in agreement. Right. So you don't want to create because like right. Like these are tough decisions. These are these get right into uh, each of the country's national security. Right. Decision making process. So so it's good to if you're going to do a multilateral response, work closely with your allies and your allied nations who are bilateral, but there needs to be something that is holding these foreign governments accountable for taking our innocent Americans and holding them hostage. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, agree, agree with that. And, um, understand the difficulties of, you know, international coalitions when you have different ideas and different goals. And especially in the case of, you know, large organizations like the UN, where the group that might be have holding the wrong detainee is also involved in any negotiations. So, um, I think that's a really interesting point and thank you for the insight. Um, now to shift the conversation a little bit into more of the work that you do day to day and the work of the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation, I was wondering if you could give some insight into what the U.S. government's approach is to engaging hostage advocates, whether that be hostage, whether that be families, friends, loved ones, um, even the media, perhaps. Um, and so what that engagement looks like and maybe some background into when that engagement started, how it's evolved with recent policies and the and different administrations, um, and just some any background you can share with that. Sure. Uh, so again, right. So out of PPD thirty was that family engagement component. So from the hostage situation, from a hostage perspective, remember. So the cell is the one that's taking on hostage cases, and the Sfiha's office is taking on these wrongful detention cases. We have a family engagement coordinator. So there is a family engagement component to work closely with these families. And, you know, through, you know, through the Levinson Act, the Robert Levinson Act, that was codified, that caught, essentially codified PPD 30 uh, back in December of 2020. That was, that was an incredible law that was passed. And, and not only did it codify the structures put in place from PPD 30, it also included 11 different criteria that defines what this wrongful detention is, right? So we have 11 different criteria. And um, it's really challenging for some of these families to uh, get that designation. It's so important because it impacts everything. It impacts. So if you're not if you don't have the classification of a wrongful detention, your case is going to sit in consular affairs, um, which is, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's just consular affairs. Their job isn't to get Americans out of prison. And, um, you know, their jobs to do wellness checks to make sure, you know, the legal process is going on. OK, um, those sorts of things. But when it comes to wrongful detentions, which is less than one percent of the number of Americans that are detained abroad, it's so important that we have this FIHA engagement because they're looking at this case as a hostage case. Like, how do we how do we get this American out? How do we advocate? How do we utilize all of our resources? How do we engage? Right. Which is so important. Not only is that important to get them out, but it's also having that wrongful detention uh, criteria is critical. So what you know, think about when the American comes home, they're, they're just I mean, they're just swiped off the street, most of them. Um, and you know, on their and they have and they've been held for years. They haven't paid their taxes. They're they defaulted on loans. All sorts of fines have uh, just kind of occurred over time. And on paper, they were detained, right? So you know, you can't send that to you know the credit company. You can't send that to the IRS. Oh, this person was detained. They're not going to care. But if you're wrongfully detained, you're treated as a hostage. And, you know, we currently have legislation in place where there is a hostage tax, uh, wrongful detainee tax. So the IRS will give that, will reimburse the individual if they pay these fines uh, and so forth. So important. And so it's so great to see that growth there. 
But it all comes back down to this wrongful detention uh, determination. So one of the biggest challenges is getting these cases out of consular affairs because we can have three, three to five thousand Americans detained abroad and it's not illegal to detain American. So it's so important to be able to have these eyes on these cases and to train our consular officers, which which currently is happening. They've They've readjusted some things to be able to include wrong, be able to spot a wrongful detention. And it should, I mean, it, we should, any American that's detained in some of these countries, now our State Department has has uh, given a D designation to some uh, countries where the, the potential for wrongful detention can occur. So before you travel, look in these countries uh, that you're going to. Does it have that D? Um, uh, it's so important because it does, it's going to have an impact. Um but when it comes to the U.S. government's approach to engaging hostage advocates, I believe it's one of the things you asked, um, it's usually the other way around. I would say that the hostage advocates engage with the U.S. government. And, you know, there's several reasons for that. I mean, let's just start with one. So we have our Privacy Act, right, which is important. And that's ingrained in, in into U.S. law for sure. Uh, but what you can do when you're held over, when you're held overseas there is a Privacy Act waiver. We call it the PAW. And it's so important for that to be signed. And it's so important for any American that's wrongfully detained that they understand what that what that document is, because they can go and, ch- and check off all these boxes. Yes, you, saying that the, that the U.S. government has permission to talk to a hostage advocate, talk to the family, talk to talk to Congress, talk to yeah, to be able to discuss this case because families are desperate they're and they you know and they're in communication with their loved one it's not a mystery it's rarely a mystery of like oh where where has my loved one been in the last couple of weeks it's some some americans were picked up on the phone talking to their loved ones so american families they're they know what's happening and you know with these reports i mean i've conducted over you know in on individual interviews over 250 some interviews with 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 families, and I haven't come across a single person or a single former hostage or wrongful detainee that says, "Man, I wish I wish my family didn't have information." Um, so it's so important to have that paw signed, and you know, and we're also seeing challenges in getting that signed. Not in every country, but where there is a U.S. consulate, sometimes we're seeing a delay in having a U.S. consular officer go in. And be able to physically hand the paw over to the American, uh, which delays communication. I mean, we've seen, you know, weeks, months go by and and the U.S. government cannot talk to family members about what's going on. So there's a lot of challenges, challenges there. So one of the recommendations that we've proposed is, you know, not to change the, the Privacy Act or just, to, you know, but when there's a wrongful detention uh, suspected by a U.S. official, have another U.S. official come along with that consular officer and act as a witness, so they can verbally say, "Hey, this is the this is the Privacy Act waiver. Do you agree to X, Y, Z, or no?" And that way, you're also making sure that there's that the American knows that um, that it's the U.S. government that's asking this. Sometimes there's confusion. Sometimes nobody's speaking English. So they're afraid to sign anything. So there, there's lots of challenges there. So that's one of the recommendations we've had, just to, just to, to make an amendment for in case of a uh, wrongful detention or suspected one, I should say. 
You've started touching on this topic already, but I'd love to dig in a little bit more. Um, it sounds like the families and friends being advocates go through and pull off these really intense feats of um, connecting with the right resources, doing everything in their power to bring their loved ones home. Um, what sort of support is available to them, be that financial support, legal support um, from the U.S. government, or even reintegration support once their loved one comes home? You know, you touched on something. I want to go back to what you're saying, but, you know, it's like these families, when this happens, they they don't they don't know that the that these structures are even in place. So one of the first things they're going to do is reach out to their representative or their senators, somebody, right? Or they're calling the State Department. Um, I mean, we've seen improvement there, but it's, you know, these families, not that, you know, not that the U.S. government is, is saying, hey, we're, we're going to worry about this case later. These are complicated and complex issues where you're, Families are constantly under pressure of trying to prioritize their case, where you're essentially standing on the desks of all these US officials, politely, kindly encouraging to continue to prioritize their case. I mean, like there's a number of Americans that are wrongfully detained. There's a number of national security issues. So it's one of an enormous challenge. And, And you have to remember, these families are super distraught. I mean, their loved ones, I mean, they're not, they're not. It's not as sim- it's not as simple. There, you know, prisons overseas are not pleasant, um, especially in some of these countries. Like Americans are being tortured, um, and it's and it's very difficult. And I mean, these families are desperate and looking for any help. But essentially, what they have to do is launch this uh, launch a campaign. They have to so that you have to garner support. You have to grow in numbers to be able to to elevate the issue and get attention. Not every family member is going to be very loud about it. Uh, some are very quiet and sometimes it's actually beneficial to stay super quiet about it. The families typically get louder when they're trying to get the attention of the US government. Um, so, but what's critical for these families I, is, is that they're connected. You need to be connected to that legislative side. You need to be, be in contact with your representative and your senators, ask for briefings. You know, hey, you know, ask for the state to provide a brief uh, to my to my representatives and and brief them on what's going on because a lot of this stuff is classified uh, and it takes time to declassify some of this information. And in addition to that, these families are working with a lot of NGOs. There's the Foley Foundation, of course. There's Hostage US uh, that helps these uh, helps families as uh, as they're walking along, helping try to figure out some of these financial issues, getting power of attorneys. I can't even imagine. It's very difficult. And there's other medical issues that develop. Um, a lot of mental health supports required uh, for these families. But in addition, these families are, you know, they're they're getting presence on Twitter. They're getting uh, there's a bring our family or bring our family home campaign, uh, which is a, a, a lovely campaign where it, all these families have that have current cases have come to together and they have a singular message. They just want, the, you know, for POTUS to utilize all tools necessary to bring their loved ones home. That's a, that's a message every family can get behind. Um, that's, that's been so helpful. Um, but they're trying to get attention. They're trying to get Garner Media's attention to elevate this case, to be able to continue to prioritize and 
and and and for high level decisions to be made um, at the POTUS level. Um, but yeah, I wanted to say that first about your other question. Um, please remind me, I'm sorry. Um, are there any formal support mechanisms available to the families? Like, is there um, oh, right. an critical. office that helps provide that, you know, social, legal? Critical, critical, critical. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so this is what's crazy, right? So you have your hostage cases. Those sit over at the hostage recovery fusion cell. And those families are able to access funds from the Victims of Crime Act, uh, call it BOCA. Right. So that supports some level of travel for families to come to Washington, D.C., which is absolutely critical, as I explained before, to be able to continue to, you know, quote unquote, stand on the desks and 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 ask for, you know, where are we in this case? Please be transparent. Want to know the progress. So there's that wrongful detainees have absolutely nothing. There is no funding. Even, I mean, there's no line of funding for the, the cell itself um, or the Svihaz office, you know. So that's that. If there's a critical issue in the hostage and wrongful detainee space, uh, obviously, you know, recovery and facilitating releases are, are number one, sure, bringing Americans home. But it's this it, that is the fact that there's no funds to support travel expenses for wrongful detainee families. Um, support for hostage or wrongful detainee flights home and the medical treatment that they receive on that flight. I will say, I will say, so in case somebody's listening, man, I mean, demand, I mean, push Congress so they can authorize and appropriate funds. Uh, but I, I, I got to, you know, the, the Svihaz office has done a tremendous job finding funds where they can to help to, to make sure Americans currently are not going to be held responsible for their flight home. And sometimes these are military flights and, and you have you have um, a lot of personnel on the flight. So, I mean, these bills can be pre pretty large. Um, in addition, you know, there's, you know, we need, we need support for returning hostages and wrongful detainees for just essential needs that arise upon recovery, you know, clean clothes. Uh, these return hostages, it's difficult to find a job. And, you know, and they need insurance, right? You can't, and they need, they need support, uh, but you need a job to be able to get at the insurance for everything else to follow, follow after that. Well, that's, it's, it's enormously challenging. Um, I do mention in the report, um, the bringing Americans home 22 report, uh, an instance where, you know, an American that did come home discussed they they're really so this report is all anonymous. I don't I don't share anybody that's participated. And uh, but they were real adamant they wanted their story shared. And, you know, so they were held they were held underground and you know before upon entering the cell they they noticed a stack of um it's just a so just black trash bags, and it, it they I mean they couldn't see what was in the trash bags, but they knew exactly what was it what was in there, and these were deceased remains of former former individuals that were held, and they were purposely kept in the cell, and these bags continued to pile up, and they wouldn't remove them, 
and they would pile up to the ceiling. They would take them out, start the process again. And this would be repeated over and over. And that's, I mean, I'm not even going to get into the physical torture uh, that these individual, that this individual experienced, but, you know, spending years in an environment, this is just one of many cases, uh, years in an environment like that is so traumatic. And how do you just come home? Um, I will say I have noticed that um, individuals that have come home, that have strong families and a support system seem to do um, seem to do a little bit better. But then there's some families that don't have that family support and they're either homeless. Uh, they can't get a job. They can't maintain a job. And, and so there's just such a need. There's such a need. And you know, the Foley Foundation helps. Hostage US helps. There are so many needs that, uh, for some of these return hostages. Uh, but, you know, just even financial support um, while somebody is being held, that's something that's not. I mean, we, we provide support for, you know, for Americans that are held. We don't know for sure if they receive it, but just for basic needs like food and water, these families are responsible for that. So they have people on the ground where the their loved ones are held. I mean, they're desperate. They're they're they are desperate for. They're at the mercy of anybody in this in this foreign country, and they they hope that they are taking the money and doing what they're supposed to do with it. But I will say, a lot of these families have been extorted at time after time. So it just even being able to identify, you know, how do we identify some uh, organization? Uh, you can't say that. It's, uh, in some of these areas, it's very difficult. But, you know, are, is there a way to identify um, whether or not these materials are being used? And I do want to say I, this is important. So if you have a if, if, if there is a consulate, right, and a U.S. official comes in, uh, you have to know that they're going to all of a sudden put a mattress or something in there, or clean a sheet or all this stuff. Like that's not the, you know, or make sure that they come, that the bruises are gone. Um, they, they'll wait, they'll, there'll be a suspension in mean, a week or two where some a U.S. official can't go in. So you got to keep in mind that, um, that, they're, that they're using these Americans and, and punishing America through them. Appreciate the insight you gave there. Um, I think that raised a lot of really interesting questions and um, concerns about how we need to adjust our hostage policy and some recommendations, I think, too, for how we can improve it and make sure that we have policies and, and the right resources in place to bring Americans home faster and make sure that those that are held abroad are being treated um, as best as possible in these you know difficult situations. Um, just to shift it a little bit um, as we get closer to the end, I think you mentioned, you know, the need to advocate for yourself, um, especially, you know, hostage advocates in that sense, and the need for better hostage advocacy policies, including, you know, advocating your congressperson and uh, pushing for certain legislation yourself um, or through, you know, media campaigns and building publicity around specific cases. And I think we'd all like to see this issue as non-political, but uh, I was curious if you see this as an area of bipartisanship and if you've noticed any particular pushback to any bills or policies around hostage policy, or if you think that this is really an area where both sides can come together to promote positive change. 
Well, actually, this is a, you know, it's so important because it is a bipartisan issue. And we see that reflected in our government, which is critical. Um, we have a, you know, on the on the House side, we have a fairly new, newly formed uh, hostage and wrongful detainee task force, uh, which is which has been important, but we have a, our, our, our on the Senate side, we have a really, really strongly engaged uh, foreign relations committee uh, that has been critical in keeping keeping our current policy. As I mentioned before, we have the Robert Levinson Hostage Recovery and Hostage Taking Accountability Act, uh, which codified PBD 30 in December of 2020. But there are there are there have been amendments in the NDAA. Uh, this past year, and there, we're continuing to push uh, to be able to hopefully get some funds appropriated uh, to be able to fund. But it's overall, it's been very encouraging to see because we see both sides of the aisle who care about this issue. Can we use more champions for hostage issues? Yes, always. Um, because, you know, when when it's time to um continue to grow the policy we need we need all the support as possible um but you know it's also you know it's it's also so important right and depending who you know is democrat that's in the oval office or republican we don't see often um anybody kind of really poking at uh, at the administration based off of um, whatever the current policy is there wasn't there was initially in a little in the beginning but there was a quick shift and that I mean and that and that required you know just engagement on the hill talking about these issues yes we're gonna see us officials interacting with folks that we may not like in the United States but why is that so important we have to have these discussions we must be at the same table so we can talk and have have our spiha have our spiha along with to be because there's nobody better that's going to be able to identify an opportunity uh, to use diplomacy to be able to 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 get our Americans home and be able to bring that information back so it gets through our hostage response group and up to POTUS. Uh, so it's so important that you know other other individual other members on the Hill that they recognize like oh we have our SPIHA engaging okay let's deconflict this let's not look at this as this this doesn't equal the U United States is now engaging in in talks and we have our foreign policy is says you know, X, Y, Z, this shouldn't be happening. But to, you know, to just kind of step back and, you know, let our Sviha do his job and get our Americans home. Um, so, yeah, so it's been very encouraging, actually, which we hope, we hope continues uh, for sure. I think we have time for one final question. Um, and so the last one that we have prepared to ask you is, what are the main challenges you see um, coming down the line for U.S.? hostage policy, but I mean, maybe to reframe that and carry on this slightly optimistic note that we're on, what are the next big opportunities that you see, the next big achievement that you're striving toward um, under your advocate hat in making U.S. policy more responsive um, to the needs of hostages and their families as well? Sure. Uh, again, the, the the funding, the funding is absolutely critical. And that is something that um, we're in full speed, speed on to be able to uh, 
get these families. I mean, their retirements uh, are depleted. Um, I mean, the entire family, like the brothers, the sisters, not just parents or, or spouses. Like, I mean, the entire family, they, they deplete their, they deplete all of their funds. And, you know, and the cases are still going. Uh, so funding is, is a huge priority. Uh, another, you know, like I said, so PPD 30, remember, it um, it didn't touch on wrongful detainees like it did with hostages, even though we do consider wrongful detainees held hostage by, by foreign governments. Um, but just to use the correct nomenclature and how the U.S. government responds, just to stay on, on, on track there, um, to, to, to call for another comprehensive review, to look at how, so, you know, to, you know, how is the cell functioning? This uh, hostage recovery fusion cell, for instance, is supposed to have a rotating director from different departments and agencies. We haven't seen that yet. Um, and does that, you know, the question is, does that have an impact? You know, this is, it's, it's an organization held within the FBI. Is the cell in the right place? Does it need to be in a more neutral location? It's, these are questions that we should be asking. Um, in addition, you know, as I mentioned before, the deputy assistant to the president on the regional side within the National Security Council that can have an eye out for these cases and elevate these cases to a national security advisor and above when necessary. Um, and, you know, in addition, you know, the, the PAW, the PAW agreement, that's that's that would be so helpful for some of these families for next steps. Uh, those are just, you know, just a name just to name a few of um, priorities that we should be focusing on this year. But really, it would be encouraging to see, you know, again, uh, as I mentioned before, to see a comprehensive review, to, to look at um, how, how, how the enterprise is doing. And again, these structures have been great. I've, you know, when I first started working for the Foley Foundation, I interviewed a lot and spent a lot of time with some, a lot of the families pre-PPD 30. And, the experience that these families, I mean, they essentially, you know, their loved ones were taken hostage and the captors are calling their house and, you know, extorting these families for money, torturing their loved ones while they're, you know, in the middle of the call. So these families are desperate. And at the same time, they were told they couldn't negotiate, they couldn't provide, and they couldn't pay a ransom. And they just, their arms were just literally, they too were held hostage in a sense. Their arms were behind their backs. So we've seen a dr drastic improvement. And I, you know, I'm saying that just by, by, by making a comparison of the families um, where their loved ones were held hostage pre-PPD 30, so pre-June of 2015 to post. And, you know, and that's not to, it's not to minimize current, families situations today it's all difficult there it's 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 horrendous um but there are structures in place which is good so we're not calling to disrupt that and it's so important that ppd 30 which i think was so important compared to the previous policy nspd 12 which is entirely classified you had u.s officials that you know this was a, you know read-only document and they didn't know what they could share with families so they too were it was unclear so PPD-30 is mostly an unclassified document, the annex and uh, appendix that is uh, classified, which is important. And there's that family engagement component. So let's keep that. Let's let's build upon what has been successful. Let's, again, you know, like our reports do, let's, let's identify where the gaps are. Let's work constructively and how do we build upon 
uh, the current structures that we see in place that match the data that we're seeing. We all these Americans. I mean, of the ones that are currently detained, over 90 percent are wrongful detainees versus Americans held hostage by terrorist organizations today. Very well. Um, thank you again. That's all the questions we have for today. Um, and I just want to reiterate that I definitely learned a lot about where we are today and our support to hostages and wrongful detainees and their advocates and what we can do moving forward to hopefully improve um, our responsiveness to hostage advocates and just bring Americans home in general. Um, and I'm sure our viewers have learned a lot too. Um, again, yeah, this is a really interesting and important topic that I don't think it's talked about enough. So again, just want to thank you so much for your time and for providing all of your important insight and knowledge into this issue. Well, thank you. We thank you from the Foley Foundation for highlighting this really, obviously we're passionate about this topic. Uh, there's so much more that needs to be done and uh, we're appreciative of your audience for taking the time to listen today. So thank you all. That was our interview with Cynthia Lurcher. Um, I know for me coming into this interview with very little background other than the research I had done for this interview, I thought it was so fascinating. Um, my policy nerd side was definitely very happy as we were talking about the interplay between all the different government agencies and just learning um, how we can improve those processes. And uh, Cynthia just had so much to share. I feel like she was an absolute wealth of knowledge. So um, David, I know you have somewhat of a background in learning about this type of policy and working on these issues. So I was wondering, what is something that you learned from this conversation? What was your biggest takeaway? Yeah, thanks for that. And yeah, agreed. Um, I think even with, you know, a background on this issue a little bit, um, compared to the amount of knowledge that Cynthia has on this issue. And I think she brought up a lot of really interesting points um, that I think are just, I think, you know, this is a really interesting topic that affects people, affects a lot of people, um, even in ways that we don't necessarily see on the media a lot. Um, so I was really happy to hear all of her thoughts on, um, like you said, government interactions with different agencies, hostage advocacy in general, and just the whole gamut of everything that goes into hostage affairs. I think even, you know, with my background, something that I learned that I wasn't aware of was just the point on the duration of hostage cases and wrongful detainee cases in, re in recent years. Um, I wasn't aware that, you know, even though the rate of hostage cases is declining um, in terms of, you know, total number of cases, that the length is, has kind of dramatically increased in recent years. So that was an interesting point that I wasn't aware of, and I think creates some interesting problems for um, how to deal with these cases. Um, you know, I think it's great that the number of cases is decreasing, but trying to figure out how best to bring someone home who's been somewhere for multiple years at a time, I think gets increasingly hard. And like like Cynthia mentioned, those first like 24 to 48 hours being the most important, um, I think it presents a unique set of issues. So that was what I learned, at least that I wasn't aware of. Um, I think my knowledge expanded a lot on a lot of different issues that I had a little bit of background on, but you know haven't touched on in a, in a few years maybe. So, but yeah, overall, I think a really interesting conversation. Um, now I feel like I there's a lot that I need to look into and research um, that I wasn't aware of that I'm interested in now. So yeah, really insightful. I totally agree. Um, I know that there's actually um, a documentary about the founding story of the James Foley Foundation. I think I'm going to have to go watch that now after this interview. Um, maybe some of our listeners will as well. 
so that's all for the burn bag today and we hope to have you all back here next time thanks for listening mm-hmm.